it's a little bit of having a hustler mentality, a little bit of, of that creative mindset to saying, if we wait in line at the door, we're going to be waiting forever. So is there a way to get in the window or sneak down the chimney? Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. My guest on the Inspire podcast today is Tarek Fancy. Tarek is the founder of the Rumi Initiative, a not-for-profit that provides access to free digital education worldwide to underserved communities. He's also uh, recently become the head of sustainable investing at BlackRock. In our conversation, Tarek explains how to get noticed when you just have the start of an idea, how to win a pitch contest, and also how to make sure that you bring your own authentic passion to every presentation. Tarek, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. Thank you for having me here. What led you to the point where you started thinking about creating Rumi? You know, it's funny, I look back at Rumi, there was always this sense, this itch for me that I wasn't doing exactly what I wanted to do in the world. Um, And I worked some years ago on investments to bring basic mobile phones into Africa and other emerging markets. And the idea was that it was a leapfrog innovation. and uh, that was exciting for me, but it was, I didn't feel di- as directly uh, involved as, as I would have liked. And I think where the change happened is that I took a year off, partly because of this uncertainty. I took a year off to do an MBA. Didn't really need an MBA at that stage. Uh, I found a one-year program at, at INSEAD in France. No, no girl involved, or was this? No girl involved at that point. The, the girl <laughs> I met there and then stayed in France for it. But, um, but she wasn't the only person I met in, that, that, um, that kind of shaped my life. There was... One person in particular, he was Dutch, and he was a guy named Michiel Lohenberg. And he ended up, uh, he and I became very close friends because we lived next to each other in business school. Uh, Then we were roommates for the second half of the program. And one of the reasons we bonded was because we were both working in business and finance. He had done banking and then was working at a private equity firm. And he and I both shared this passion to do something with these skills to make the world a better place. And it's a useful skill set, everything, the training we had gotten in the private sector. But we wanted to do good things and we couldn't find, either couldn't find the avenue or didn't have the emotional push. And that all changed a few years after we graduated because he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And stage four melanoma in particular is, is very, very uh, difficult. It's more of a question of, uh, of time than it is even odds. And... Um, uh, when you have someone who you know very closely and, you, and, you, uh, and they go through something as, as deep and, and um, uh, you know, life-changing as that, you, you sometimes live vicariously through their experience because you're close to them and helping support them and be with them through it. And um, he fought stage four cancer for two and a half years before sadly passing at the end of 2012. And in that time, he founded uh, a charity using play as a way to get kids engaged in education and learning, a similar idea to, to what Right to Play does. Um, his was an organization called Join for Joy. And he founded it you know, in, in this period while he was fighting stage four cancer. And what I really started to appreciate from that was that 
he, he and I would both sort of said, we're going to do something. We, we care about these things. We're going to do it someday, you know. And, but it was kind of always like, yeah, I'll get to that at some point. But in his case, the realities of his medical situation meant that he could no longer say, you know, oh, I'll, yeah, someday I'll do it eventually. He, it was now or never. And, and he, you know, and that's when you start to see people when they're, they know that their time is limited. You see what really matters to you in your life, what you really value. And um, I lived that uh, through him as a friend. And on the other end of it, when he passed, I actually was visiting his parents in Amsterdam uh, and was standing at his grave. And I decided I had the idea for Rumi. And I said, you know, I think this can change the world and revolutionize global education. And uh, I've been lucky because he was sitting, he was lying six feet below and I was standing six feet above. And I thought, you know, if I'm not going to do this now, when am I going to do it? At the time, what was your idea? You know what? It was a really, it was a simple idea to say that uh we, there's potential if we can bring the free digital learning revolution that's online to the offline world, to people who have never had any access to it, but would clearly have the most to gain. And uh, what I saw about the charity space, and what's interesting is that we're technically structured as a charity, but we're, that's literally our tax status. Everything else about us, we look like a lean tech startup. And every step of the way, we kind of made that a, 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 a focus of ours. And we looked at the world and I said, well, there's about a billion kids underserved in education, right? And by the way, that includes people in rich countries too. And it may, you know, it may be 70 or 80% of uh, some emerging markets, and it may only be 5 or 10% of Canada, right? But in remote indigenous communities and in certain parts in, in our country, there's, you know, the, we have high scores overall, but uh, that's an average and it masks deep inequalities underneath. Um, and so, Looking at that problem, it seemed like most of the solutions were around, you know, donating more money. So it was like the idea was if there's a big problem and you need $100 to solve that problem and you only have $1, then the answer is clear. You, you know, you got to get out there and raise 99 more dollars. And there's never really going to be that kind of money for some of these big problems. And so um, I thought, well, there's got to be a more effective and innovative way to solve this problem. And I would look at NGOs and they'd be shipping paper textbooks to Africa. And I said, well... Does that really make a lot of sense if today we can just take a low-cost tablet uh, and put enough storage space on it so it, it totally works offline? You can just put everything you want and then just put an entire curriculum of open licensed learning content and let's, you know, let's create a library right. for the cost of a book and let's just start there and mm. see what happens. And so, so that was the vision that you had? That was the vision, yeah. yeah. It was really just leveraging two trends that were moving very fast and showing a new way of doing things. And the first was that pretty much everything we learned under the age of 18 is available for free online. Um, and you can go to YouTube today and you could learn to be a plumber or how to fix you know, your yeah, parts of your house or things that actually have value, right? They're, they, you know, they're job skills and so on. And at the same time, that as this content's exploding, the, the cost of deliver is plummeting because the hardware costs are coming down, internet bandwidth costs are coming down, storage costs are coming down. And we thought, can we combine those two to do something infinitely more effective in bringing access to education to a girl in Rwanda whose math and reading scores are probably 40% below the kid down the street from us right now in Toronto, but, um, and, 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 and who's just as capable, but the, but the issue is that she did lacks access. There, there's so many ideas that are great that never go anywhere. So what did you do? How did you, how did you start from a communication standpoint after you made this commitment at your friend's grave to start making this idea a reality? A couple of things that I would say, you know, one of them was figuring out how to talk about it in a way that 
made sense for the listener rather than for myself. Uh, and then the second thing was being creative how we delivered that mm -hmm. message. And who was your audience, by the way, in, that, in those early days? The earliest days, it was really, um, it, there was a number of audiences, but the most key audience was uh, finding large funders to basically say, I'm gonna roll the dice on this. And I told them, I said, listen, I'm gonna fund this as much as I can, but there's gonna be a limit to me funding it. And I'm gonna, more importantly, take no salary. And because it's nonprofit, I have no equity. So um, I just fanatically believe that this can be done. And, um, you know, I'm like a dog with a bone. I'm not, you know, and, and that's the level of passion I was bringing to it. Um, but I said, I can't do this alone. I need help. And the, the interesting thing was um, trying to get those backers required sort of thinking a little bit about what the, where they were sitting and what they were looking to see. And... Um, and a, and a lot of times I would get the message mixed up because I'd talk to a big funder, but then I might talk to a teacher because it's an education thing and, and we want that input. But they would be looking to see different things. And I'll, I remember there's one time when I was convinced of the potential for this largely because of the economics behind it, right? Because I say, I always joke that what we're doing is not really cutting edge technology. Um, it's good technology, but what's cutting edge is the economics is the fact that you can make something that people need so much cheaper and exactly as you mentioned because it's so much cheaper on a marginal cost basis to deliver bytes and books as i say right there's no materials cost there's no transport cost you know once you've built the infrastructure it's there and all the contents now open source there's no ip cost and so um but that excited me and then i remember going into a meeting with a bunch of teachers and they and they were an important constituency because i needed their advice to understand what am i missing here about building this and uh, I gave this long presentation where I talked about hardware cost trends in Shenzhen, low cost tablets, you know, uh, RAM prices for storage, <laughs> internet bandwidth. And I'll never forget at the end of the presentation, one of the teachers says, I don't get it. And I said, what, what do you mean? What's there not to get? And I expected she, you know, would be questioning one of my graphs on the, you know, the, the economics or the business side of it. And uh, she said, look, I don't see the human aspect. And I kept flushing out and realized that um, that all was nice, the business pieces. Those were what I cared about, and that's what some of the funders cared about. But to a teacher who, and an educator, uh, they're looking at it the exact same thing. And they, and they want all that stuff to be right, of course, but they're looking at it from a different angle and, as of course, just as important an, an angle. And I think I started to learn at that point that um, I needed to do a better job of tailoring what I was doing to the specific people I was talking to so it made sense from their lens. And I was also thinking about what, I, what did I want them to do at, at the end of it, um, which may have been just at that point, you know, early stage, just advice, make, you know, help me figure out what I'm missing. So one year in, after you made that decision, where were you with Rumi? So one year in, I was sort of had the idea, we had started a program in Haiti. Um, we had very good results. I finagled my way to speaking at a UNICEF conference in New York, which I probably had no business doing because we were so early stage. Um, and then we started to get a lot of interest from partners. And these are, we always work with a local partner. So UNICEF is implementing our technology in Jordan for Syrian refugees, Junior Achievement uses in Africa. And, um, and so we had some real momentum. This was starting to become real and move from a slide deck to you know, something that existed and you could hold. And did you have some funders at that point too? We had very limited funding. It was pretty much still me. <laughs> and it was around that one year, uh, well, just under a year where um, we got a few introductions to a few high profile, you know, business leaders in the Toronto community. And, and people uh, said, listen, this is something that so-and-so may care about. 
and you should, um, you know, I'll, I'm happy to share this with them. And one in particular was Ed Clark, who was at the time the CEO of TD Bank Group. And uh, I'll never forget, we had this opportunity to uh, deliver him a package of materials and see if he wants to support this. And uh, we, were, we had someone advising us who had been um, in doing stuff in the nonprofit space for, for many years. And she said, well, here is what you really need to do. And it was, it, she wrote this letter and it said, you know, dear sir, did you know that there are a billion kids, you know, underserved in education around the world? And it's long, all yeah, this data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I looked at it and I kept having sinking feelings. I thought, well, I get a lot of these in the mail and I tend to recycle most of them. And this guy must get a hundred times as many. And I don't think we're going to catch his eye like that. And I was sitting and thinking, and then all, and we had the right message at some point, but it was like, how do we deliver it? And all of a sudden, one of the people said, well, why don't we just give him a tablet? And then we said, you know, we could actually give him the one we're using in Haiti that kids are holding and it has all the content and he'll touch and feel it and he'll understand it better than if we write about it. And we said, yeah, we're nodding our heads around tables. That makes a lot of sense. But he said, oh, we won't know how to use it. And we said, yeah, it's true that, you know, you'd need some context for it. So we can attach a letter. And we're like, yeah, well, letter and he'll read it and then use a tablet. And then finally someone said, why don't we just put everything on the tablet? And then what it evolved into, within, this is all done overnight, like uh, this is one of these startup stories where we're doing late night, is uh, me recording a video pitch. And we jerry-rigged the tablet so that as soon as he turned it on, it automatically played a video of me saying, hey, the device you're holding, Ed, is, you know, is being used in Haiti. Here's how it's being used. It goes through the whole tutorial. At the end of it, it's, it has the old Mission Impossible thing where it says this device will now self-destruct <laughs> as a joke. And then he tried it out. And what was interesting was that it was impossible for, you know, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't recycle that. He couldn't take that and say, yeah, it's interesting, you know. That really caught his eye. It was both how we did it. And he told also, you that later? That Oh, yeah. We, so he set up a meeting then, came back uh, and said, you know, okay, I'm interested in no more. I, I want to I meet this guy. And, uh, and we had nearly a two-hour meeting, you know, at their offices at the end of the day. And he was genuinely thoughtful, asking very, very intelligent questions because he's pro-innovation, but he's famously, if you follow uh, what he had done as CEO of TD Bank and how they avoided the financial crisis, he's very careful about thinking about innovation that, you know, we don't just get caught up and jump on the things that are actually not uh, a great innovation at all. Imagine if you'd just taken the traditional way, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about rooming. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, right? Because you, you wouldn't have stood out in the very crowded marketplace of where there are tons of good ideas. It's a little bit of having a hustler mentality, a little bit of, of that creative mindset to saying, if we wait in line at the door, we're going to be waiting forever. So is there a way to get in the window or sneak down the chimney? And, you know, I think back to there's one early meeting I'd had. This is about a year in. And someone I know said, hey, you should meet this guy, Bryant Biggs. He uh, works for uh, Rock Nation, which was, a, and this is in New York, a merger of Rock, Rockefeller Records and Live Nation. And he's very interested in education in Africa, and he's looking at doing things in Nigeria. Uh, and so I went by his office and met him. What I didn't realize at the time was he's Jay-Z's first cousin. And, uh, and Jay-Z, the rapper, had a few very close people around him. And probably first and foremost was his cousin, Brian Beehive Biggs was his name. And he had also done a bunch of stuff in the music industry. And, um, and I remember having a conversation with him. And, and uh, I, he, he said, oh, this is really interesting. We could work on things together. And I told him, well, you know, what we're doing uh, is we are going to, you know, go and apply through this main, main funding channel for this, and we're going to talk to these researchers. We were doing the traditional model because of what we had read about and what the whole space did and so on. And I remember him kind of giving me a look, like his head kind of tilts sideways, and he says, 
yeah, but, you know, I don't know if you should waste your time with those guys. That, that, they're not going to get it. He said, you know, so they're not going to get it. And, um, and it's, it, it's going to take forever to do anything. And, you know, his just mindset was the mindset of a guy who used to hang out with Jay-Z on the street corner in the late 90s, you know, or I guess his early 90s, selling, you know, CDs and, and tapes and mic tapes. And he's thinking to himself, listen, if I try to go the traditional route, I'm just, I'm going to end up at the back of the line forever. I need to think in a creative way how to get noticed. And so I think um, we started to, that, that became a big part of our culture. That story was that we were thinking, well, how do we make sure we do something different than everyone else is doing to get noticed? Because otherwise we're always going to be fighting uh, against a million other competing demands on people's time. So let's fast forward to year two. So you, year one, you start meeting influential people. Mm-hmm. Where are you at a year later with Rumi? So now we've started to build real uh, momentum. So we're in five or six countries, working with partners, starting to show very good results. And we're, uh, we're the risk aversion around trying it, and there's a lot of risk aversion, bizarrely, in the charity and international development space. From these local partners. From these local partners. You would think they would be the most risk-taking types of folks because these are some extraordinarily challenging problems and people are under-resourced and you got to try new models. I mean, you need One would think. <laughs> One would think. But the challenge is the way the structures are set up, um, a lot of folks in these organizations and the way the organization is set up are actually are not intended to take risk. They're intended to take the safe route. And no one actually gets rewarded for taking risk, but they can always get um, uh, penalized for failure. And so people tend to take the old, you know, the old adage, and no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Well, you know, which was, was probably more accurate probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're sitting and thinking to themselves, you know, why am I going to try Rumi, right? That, that, I, that could land me in hot water if it doesn't work. And so you had this sort of this risk aversion. And, um, and so some people were starting to notice and pay attention. And it was important for us to find those people and to communicate very clearly what we were doing in the value proposition. But at the same time, some people still didn't get it. And I remember I went... I once went to a, a, a pitch competition. It's still startup type of pitches were growing, and um, and it was in Kansas City. And you would actually sit in a boxing ring and do a, a, and do a, a, a verbal pitch of your presentation against another person. No fighting, no gloves, and then a, a, a judges would choose the winner. And I remember we had done five or six uh, countries. I had this thing, and I said, look. This is going to revolutionize education because you can extrapolate what we're doing across different places and how it can grow. And I was up against someone who had an idea of building a Fitbit for dogs. Fitbark. Fitbark. Which I have for my wiener dog. You know, it's so funny. I, I, I didn't have a dog back then. Now I have a dog and, and I would love it. But back then I didn't get it because, you know, it, it wasn't something I could relate to. And, and I was convinced that, you know, because I actually really liked the, the guy from Fit, Fitbark. You know, we got to know each other and so on. But in that context there, I thought to myself, well, this is obvious. So we should, we should win. We're going to bring education to a billion people. And we're in five or six countries doing this. And, 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 and Fitbark, as is, is awesome and fun as is, is, was, hadn't even launched yet. And it was an idea. And, uh, and I actually lost. I lost to it, and I, and I could not believe it, and my team members could not believe it. They're the like, indignity of it. Well, you know, it's funny because I hadn't even launched, so when I'd tell people, no one had heard of Fitbark, and they were saying, wait, you know, you're telling me you're going to revolutionize global education for people everywhere from, you know, Nunavut to Nigeria to whatever, and, and you got beaten by Fitbit for dogs? And, and it was just extraordinary. It's like, you know, I, listen, I want dogs to be healthy and have good exercise, including my own dog, Ruff, but... Uh, but I don't know if that ranks as high as educating Syrian refugee kids. 
And honestly, I, I had so what, this- wait, what was the mistake you made or what lesson did you take from a communication standpoint of why you got beat out by Fitbar? I think probably there's two. One of them was I probably didn't think enough about who the judges were. I thought of a pitch that I knew would convince myself, a different version of myself. I think it would probably have convinced Ed Clark and a lot of our it early had backers. had convinced Ed Clark. Well, right. exactly. It had convinced him. We'd made progress since then. It was all great progress. Um, but the challenge was that the judges weren't exactly like him. They had different backgrounds. They were, I mean, maybe they had dogs too. I don't, I don't know. That probably had something to do with it. But regardless, uh, I hadn't really tailored my message for where they were coming from very well. And I think some part of it is also realizing, I think, that it's impossible to convince everybody, right? It's like I always say, if everybody said it was a good idea, then someone else has probably already done it or is very close to doing it. And, um, and I was very sensitive, even at that stage, around um, the idea that, you know, someone didn't get it or thought it was a bad idea and I'd feel aggrieved by this. And like the, need, the teachers. <laughs> like the teachers and the, and the need to convince them that I was mm-hmm. right. But I think at some point, particularly after this uh, Fitbark example, I thought, well, you know what? You, I can't convince everybody and I've just got to, you know, have a thick enough skin to realize that we can communicate as well as we can. But if it's something truly innovative and, and you know, ahead of its time as we're building it, then it's just no matter how good we are at communicating, you can't convince everyone. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm better at communicating the proposition today uh, than I was at the beginning. So now I might say something simple and say, hey, what is it in two seconds? I say, look, we bring the free digital learning revolution to the offline world. And that, in a sense, is exactly what we're doing now in over 20 countries and in remote indigenous communities in Canada to, you know, Syrian refugee camps in the Middle East and to South Asia. But uh, I didn't say anything like that in the beginning. I would tell people, well, you know, um, you know, we're going to take this tablet and, and it's not even tablet based. Now people, we're doing programs in Afghanistan where they can get it on any smartphone. You know, and, maybe, of- and maybe let's just jump to that next evolution, because I know what Rumi was evolved from the tablet that you produce and lower than sent to something that's crowdsourced, that's, that's any device based. So tell me about how did the, the initiative evolve and how did you communicate that evolution to people? Yeah, so in the terms of, it's almost delivery and curation. So we're delivering this content and it's a tablet. And then we started expanding and saying, well, the tablet gives you certain benefits and features, but a lot of people already have hardware or a phone and we want anyone to be able to receive this free learning content and the packages we're doing. And when was this story that this happened? How many years in were you? Um, this was sort of in like 2015, right? Yeah, so, so we were, were three or four, three years in, three, four years about, in? Yeah, two, two, two and a bit years okay. in. And... Um, and then what happened was we started getting approached to do uh, more programs in geographies where we hadn't done them. Actually, this is around the time we started doing stuff in Syrian refugee camps, but we didn't have a lot of content in Arabic. And the content's all out there, right? I mean, you know, again, you can go on a whole bunch of sites and find stuff. Um, on, to use a YouTube example, you can find great learning content in Arabic in YouTube, but you can also find a lot of cat videos. And, you know, some things are useful and some things aren't. And curation is very, very difficult and very laborious. Because today, even artificial intelligence, as much as it's advanced, is nowhere near telling you if a 25-minute video, you know, that claims to teach Arabic, uh, math in Arabic or some specific unit of math in Arabic is good or bad or if it's culturally relevant or not. And so what we started doing was we started building in crowdsourcing, much as Wikipedia had done. And this was the strength of our being a nonprofit was that we could get people to, you know, to feel uh, uh, aligned with the mission and happy to contribute their skills for free to that mission. And what was really interesting uh, about it was that, again, I had this challenge, how do we 
communicate this. And so we had gone through a program called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. It's a big sort of incubator for tech startups. They've, they've produced Airbnb and Dropbox and so on. And um, going through that program, we were going to launch our platform, the Learn Cloud, publicly and get people to help with the Syrian refugee crisis. And I was sort of saying, you can come and curate this thing. And that, and I had different ways of explaining it. And then finally, people were like, listen, just tell them you can either donate money anywhere else, and that's what everyone's asking you, or in our case, you can donate your brains. Hmm. Well, I'm like, that's, that's not Clear. a bad way. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, so, so I went in front of an audience of 200 teachers that they had at Y Combinator's office for an educator day. And I said, listen, you know, uh, everyone had started thinking about Syrian refugee crisis. There was tragically the body of a toddler washed up on shore in the Middle East. And suddenly it was all over the news and people said, hey, what, what can I do about this? And every single charity and nonprofit in the world, most of whom are not, you know, again, they're more about fundraising and redistributing uh, rather than innovating in any core sort of way. They were just raising money and they're built and they're beautiful websites and pictures and you, but you scroll down and it's always going to ask for your visa at the end of it or your credit card. And what, um, and so ours is we took a completely different tack and I said, there's 200 people in this room. If all of you give half an hour Right there, we have 100 hours of the collective wisdom of the crowd. And that's going to get us 10 times faster uh, to where we need to be. And it's a humanitarian crisis. And we're going to have a 10 times better product at the end of it. And in the end, we had people at Arctic College in Nunavut. I mean, we have people around the world, but I, I really like the Arctic College example. People at Arctic College in Nunavut using their computers to contribute to the, to the education of Syrian refugee children on the Turkey-Syria border. Uh, and it was just such a powerful idea that now we've expanded that. And today, uh, we have companies doing it. And companies are actually the, the biggest supporters because they engage their employees, they do hackathons, hmm. and they contribute job skills that then flow through to financial literacy Amazing. programs with junior achievement on the ground and other things like that. So if you had to sum up for anyone listening who wanted to champion an idea, and it not maybe a, a charitable idea or maybe just an idea in their community, what would be the three biggest lessons from how you've communicated this that you would leave them with? I would say that uh, the three I found were, uh, first of all, to think deeply about the audience you're talking to. And it's difficult because in the beginning, you're very excited about an idea that resonates with you. And you're the idea is going through your head and circulating and you're refining it. And there's a temptation to just spill that idea out in the form that it is existing in your head to other people. And this, that temptation is because it's hard to do anything but that. But I started to learn that uh, I needed to walk into a meeting and closely understand who the audience was, A. Uh, and number two, uh, what I wanted them to do when I, we left. Because I had so many meetings where it was like, this is cool, you know, good luck. And then there was no takeaway, or, and I hadn't asked for anything or even led up to an ask. So I would say the three things are one, you know, really clarify the message and understand uh, your audience and tailor it to them. Number two, make sure you really know what you want them to do before you even walk in the room, uh, because then you can back solve a little bit for that. And I'd say number three is actually just practice makes perfect. I would say that, you know, the first two things you can keep in mind, but it probably was hundreds of conversations, probably even thousands, uh, of, of just doing it and keeping the first two things in mind, then practicing, practicing, and eventually just getting better at you know, reading what people wanted to hear and, and what sorts of stories or data points would convince them to, to pay attention. Look, I'm inspired by your story. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to share it. Uh, if people want to learn about Rumi, where should they go? They can just, uh, it's Rumi, spelled R-U-M-I-E. And they can just Google it or go to rumi.org, R-U-M-I-E.org. Right. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on the Inspire Podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Tarek Fancy. And I hope you are enjoying the Inspire Podcast in general as much as I'm enjoying making it. We're now just over three months into the podcast, and I'd like to ask you a favor. Rate and review the program. Now, you may not know how to do this. I know I was showing my parents, and they had no idea. Uh, And so if you're using an iPhone, you can go into your podcast app, choose the Inspire Podcast, and scroll down. And what you'll see is a blank five stars. You click that, give us some stars. Hopefully you give it five stars. And it will also offer you the opportunity to put a comment in. Please do this. It helps us get noticed. It's how others find the podcast. And on a personal note, I read and value every comment. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode soon.